Today I want to talk with you on, on the subject of uh, what I've called freedom followers. Uh, we're still in this series on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's an amazing amount of information in the New Testament about what that uh, entails and what it involves, being a follower, a fully devoted follower of Christ. There are a lot of people today that say they're followers of Christ, right? But to be a really fully committed follower of Christ is a different matter. And Jesus talks about that, and, um, and he he's, uh, takes the matter very serious for us, and so we should also do the same. Uh, but when we think about freedom, freedom is one of humanity's most sought-after and prized possessions. If you go to the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, uh, Virginia, there's a special display for a rickety homemade aluminum kayak. And uh, it's really kind of odd because this tiny makeshift boat seems out of place with all the other displays of these impressive military and naval vessels and artifacts from significant battles uh, on the seas through the centuries. But there's a bronze plaque by this aluminum kayak, and it tells the museum visitors the story behind the heroic makers of this little aluminum kayak. In 1966, an auto mechanic named Lorino and his wife Consuelo decided that they could no longer live under the oppression of Cuba's totalitarian regime. And so after spending months collecting scrap metal, they pieced together a boat just barely big enough for two small people. And then uh, Lorino rigged a, a small lawnmower engine on the back of this kayak. And after months of planning... On a moonless September night, sitting back to back and wearing only their swimsuits, they set out in the treacherous straits of Florida to leave Cuba. And they had only enough uh, food and water for a couple of days of survival. And finally, after they had floated in the open sea for about 70 hours, a U.S. Coast Guard found and rescued the couple just south of Alligator Reef in the Florida Keys. Was it worth it for their freedom? Well, Lorino thought so. Years later, this is what he said. He says, when one has grown up in liberty, you realize it is important to have freedom. We lived in the enormous prison, which is Cuba, where one's life is not worth one crumb, where one goes out into the street and does not know whether or not uh, they will return to their home because the political police can arrest you without any warning and put you in prison. Before this could happen to us, we thought that going into the ocean and risking death or being eaten by the sharks is a million times better than to stay suffering under political oppression. Well, you know, from a historical perspective, almost all freedom movements have resulted from desperation. If you go back and look at it, almost all of the movements of freedom have resulted from some sense of desperation. It's true of the American Revolution under the, the burden that had been imposed upon us by the UK. Uh, America said enough is enough. And you can just track history and you'll see that nations that have broke out have generally uh, and become free have generally done, some after, done so after a great deal of desperation. Well, spiritual freedom is like that as well. Do you know the Bible says that God has put the knowledge of himself in the hearts of all humanity? And spiritual freedom is a, 
a pursuit that oftentimes doesn't really happen until there's some kind of desperation in our life, a desperation to be free from the bondage of sin the Scripture talks about. It's a freedom, however, that can only be found in Christ Jesus. And I want to tell you this morning, risking everything to find that freedom in Christ is a million times better than living a life of spiritual bondage. And today, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about freedom in Christ. It is a hallmark of discipleship, Jesus says. And I want to show you three steps to that kind of freedom in Christ. Look with me, if you will, in verse 31, chapter 8 of John's gospel, Jesus says, he says to the Jews who had believed in him, and that's important, and I'll come back to that in a moment, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Father, would you take now your word and use it with your Holy Spirit uh, to help us, Father, uh, understand what the freedom uh, in Christ that you have purchased for us uh, is all about. I pray, Father, that today we will understand the riches that come in freedom in Christ. And I pray, Father, that you will convict our hearts, that you will challenge us, Father, where we need to be changed, that you will change us. And Father, where we need to be redirected, you will redirect us. And Father, for those who are listening to my voice, I pray that it will be the very voice of the Spirit of God. And I pray, God, that you will use it in the hearts of those who do not know you but long for you. the the hearts of those who are desperate, Father, to be free. I pray today that you will bring them that freedom in Jesus Christ. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, Lord, in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are, as I've said, few pursuits in life that are more significant than the pursuit of freedom. But freedom is more than being able to do whatever you want. Unfortunately, today, there are many who just say freedom means I can do what I want to do. Uh, and that's the problem of modern culture, is that it assumes that, that I can decide what's right, I can decide what's wrong, I can do what I want to do because I'm free. But in our passage, Jesus points out that freedom, real freedom, must be founded on truth which includes the truth about the sinful heart and the sinful condition and our need for a Savior who is the only one that can set us free from the consequences of our sinful condition. The Jews in this passage that Jesus was talking to and speaking to, they had trouble doing something. They had trouble distinguishing between earthly freedom and spiritual freedom. Did you notice that verse 33, they said, we've never been enslaved to anything or anyone. They couldn't, they didn't quite get what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about spiritual freedom. They were talking about earthly freedom. And I suggest to you that oftentimes we do the same thing. We confuse what real freedom is all about. And the problem for these Jews was that though they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and I'll talk about that in a moment, they did believe he was the Messiah, but they couldn't get past the idea that they were still living in any kind of bondage. 
They were so steeped in the legalism and the law that they couldn't distinguish between the kind of freedom we often talk about in the world and the kind of freedom that is eternal. Now, we sometimes hear this uh, phrase, uh, freedom fighters. You've heard that before. The dictionary defines a freedom fighter as a person who takes part in the resistance movement against an oppressive political or social establishment. I tell you this morning, Jesus is not talking here about freedom fighters. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about instead freedom followers. He's talking about disciples that follow him. And as a result of that, they find freedom in their soul. And with that in mind, I want to show you three things. The first is this found in verse 31. And it is that freedom begins with believing faith. Real freedom Spiritual freedom begins with believing faith. And if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to have to have believing faith. Notice verse 31, to the Jews who believed in him. This is who he's addressing his comments to. Now, the Greek word here is pisteo. And it, it doesn't refer to a general belief. It refers to a particular kind of belief. And so Jesus uh, is, is more than a teacher. He's more than just a rabbi, and they admit that. They believe in him as more than just some kind of general good person or, or general theologian or rabbi. What they, uh, they are acknowledging is that they believe he is the Messiah. But understand this, because they, they have the right kind of belief, they didn't make application of that belief. And, and here's the important fact is believing faith is the kind of faith that leads to saving faith, but it has to be acted upon. The Bible says the demons, pisteo, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe, they know that to be true. That's what's going on right here. Our world is full of people, and they're sitting in churches today that believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they've never made, taken the next step and applied what they know to be true uh, uh, spiritually. The demons believe, the Bible says, and tremble. We know the demons aren't saved. They have a believing kind of faith, but it is not a believing faith that leads to their salvation. Does that make sense? And so you can have the right kind of belief and be lost. The Bible says one day that there are going to be those who stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, that's the right acknowledgement, right? Because remember, the Bible says one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it says in that day, Jesus said this. He said, many will stand and say, Lord, Lord, that's the right confession. Lord, did we not? And they did all of these things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus honored his name. But what does he say in the end? He says, but depart from me because though you got the right confession and you had the right belief, you never received me. You never let it transform you. And by the way, this should rock us if we're not certain. It should rock us to know that I can make the right confession, that I can have the right belief, and yet have not trusted in Christ as my Savior. This is what's going on here. You have these Jews who have the right belief. Look, they have moved at least intellectually to the right confession and the right belief. They know he is the Messiah, but they haven't taken the next step. You know why? Because they kept con confusing their earthly freedom with spiritual freedom. And they didn't take the next steps. 
In their case, their belief didn't translate into salvation and or discipleship. How do we know that? Well, you got your Bible open? Look over at verse 44. To this same crowd Jesus is talking about, and by the way, there's much more to this story to read. In verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. This is is what Jesus says to these Jews who had believed. He says, but here's the problem. You're still of your father, the devil. The right confession, but there's no relationship because their believing faith has not translated into saving faith. Are y'all with me? On one occasion... The church I pastored in Florida, a young woman made an appointment to come and see me. She was a Jewish young woman, and she sat in my office. She'd been attending our services, and she said to me, she said, I've been coming here now for for some time, and she said, I'm a Jew. She said, but I believe. She said, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I, I believe he is the Savior of mankind, and I said, that's wonderful. I said, have you ever then put your trust in him as your Messiah. You see the difference? One is believing, one is acting upon the belief. And and I've clarified the gospel with her, and she said, no, I, I haven't. And then she began to sob. And I mean, she was sobbing. Tears were rolling down her face, and she's sobbing. And I waited for uh, to to compose herself. And when she did, I said, is there a problem? And she said, there is a problem. She said, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, but I can't accept him. And I said, why? And she said, and here's what she said, because my grandmother and my family are orthodox, and they would kick me out of the family. They would never accept it if I trusted Christ. And I love my grandmother, and I love my family. And she's sobbing, and, and I said, at some point you're going to have to decide whether to accept or to reject Jesus. It's not now about what she knew. It was now about what she would do. And, you know, you say, well, that makes sense in her. That's what's going on right here. Is they say, I believe. I believe, but. I believe, but. We live in a world of I believe, but today. I believe, but. I want to live like this. I believe, but. Uh, There are other ways. I I believe, but I don't want to have to make the kind of commitment that Jesus calls me to. I believe he's the Messiah, but I just, I can't move to acceptance. Spiritual freedom begins with believing faith, but it must move to saving faith. Not just general belief in who Jesus is. And that's foundational to discipleship. And it, it is essential to the foundation. This past June, part of a slab from a high-rise condo building in Surfside, Florida, dropped into the parking garage below. Within minutes, the east wing of the 13-story uh, tower collapsed, killing 98 people in a disaster that doesn't really have modern precedent of that kind in the U.S., It was designed in late 1970s, uh, 136-unit Champlain Towers 
South was completed in 1981, and then it was marketed as luxurious living. Officials are still, by the way, investigating why the tower fell. Y'all remember that this summer? Engineers point to some key decisions, however, during construction in the investigation. They said that while, legal, uh, while the construction techniques were legal at the time, they still compromised the building's foundation and integrity because they did only what they had to do to pass inspection. I thought about that as I was thinking through, again, that accident, and I thought that's, uh, that's like a life that's built on a faulty foundation, isn't it? Just like uh, the Champlain Towers that looked like luxury living on the outside, they looked so good, but at some point in time, it was doomed to fail because the foundation was not strong enough to support the construction. Now, I want to tell you this morning that if you build your life on the wrong foundation, it is doomed to fail at some point in time. It will collapse. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but they were empty on the inside. There was nothing there. Jesus told us about uh, uh, two homes that were built in the parable of the houses. Remember, one was built on sand, one was built on uh, a rock, and to the, to the uh, a casual observer, they both looked fantastic. They looked like the place you'd want to live. But when the storms came, the foundation of sand collapsed. It washed out. It didn't hold. And the one on the rock say, now, perhaps it was battered and beaten just like the other one, but it stood. Why? Because the foundation kept it in place. Listen to me. The best religion in the world, all it can do is dress up the outside of humanity. That's all it can do. The very best. Pick, pick your, your favorite outside of Christ. And the best it can do is dress up the outside. Only Jesus can clean up the inside because he's the foundation. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. Believing faith goes beyond just affirming faith. Believing faith has to move to saving faith to establish a relationship with Christ and to begin genuine discipleship. Affirming faith is simply being aware, but believing faith moves a person to saving faith and an awareness of Christ and an acceptance of Christ as their Savior. And so, and so freedom begins with believing faith, and it moves to saving faith. Secondly, let me show you this. Freedom continues. That's how it begins. But how does it continue? It continues with the abiding word. Again, verse 31, keep your Bibles open there, and it says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, that means you don't have to, but the, the distinguishing mark of a disciple is that they abide in the word uh, of God. Jesus makes clear that the measure of a disciple is reflected in their devotion to the master's teaching and the master's words. Now, there are two verses uh, or two words in this verse that you have to understand. You've absolutely got to understand. The first word that you have to understand is the word, word. Did y'all, does that make sense? You have to understand. Uh, look at this word, word, if you abide in my word. Now, in the Greek, that is the word logos. I want you to take a moment and go back over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. And then over in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. By the way, that's the Christmas story. This word, Word, is an interesting word. It is logos. And in John 1, it is the Word for Jesus. So when the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, it's talking about Jesus Christ. Now think about this. If I use the expression of a logo, you know what a logo is, don't you? Our church has a logo. Your clothes have logos on them. And a logo is a, when you see the logo, the whole purpose of a logo is when you see it, you can identify the product, right? So if you see a certain logo, you know what that logo represents. So nobody even has to tell you at a certain point in time what that, what that product is. You, the logo tells you what the product is. Now, if you got that logos, okay, we get our English word logo from this Greek word logos, and so here's what John writes in chapter 1. In the beginning was the logos. The logos was with God, and the logos was God. Here's what he said. The logo, Jesus, so that's why Jesus would, watch this, this is so cool. That's why Jesus would say later on, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Are y'all following what I'm, I'm talking about here? So the word logos means uh, 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 Christ, Christ in human form, which was a representative, or if you see him, you see God because he is God in the flesh. Do you see the connection there? That's why you got to understand. Now, go back over to chapter 8. It's the same word. The word, he, if, if you abide in my word, you are truly, that's the word, logos. In other words, there is a connection between the presence of Christ and the word of God. There is a connection. In other words, when you get into the word of God, listen, you connect to the presence of God. You get that? Amen. I mean, that's big stuff. When you get into the Word of God, you connect with the presence of God. And that makes sense because He is the author of the Word. And He is the living Word. He is the Word incarnate. This is the Word that is written to us, but it is connected to Him through the author, the Spirit of God. So you have to understand that Word. So a disciple is connected to God via the Word. The second thing, the second word is the word abide. Minnow in the Greek, and it means to remain. The best way to think of it is as in, uh, to, to, to remain in a place or in a domain. It, it, is a, it is a state of existence. It is a way of life. It's like dwelling under the authority of God. So he says, he who abides, who lives under the authority of my Word which makes you submission, uh, submissive to his presence. So I'm living under his living word. We call it the living word of God. One translate, uh, translation translates this phrase uh, instead of abide as to, uh, he that holds to my teaching. Now, I, I need to tell you something. 
that doesn't capture the primary idea of what's going on here. You see, that's kind of like almost like intellectual property. I, I possess the intellectual property of Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying there, that you possess the property. Uh, and so it's not a good translation to say, uh, hold to my teaching. The disciple is to have more than Jesus' intellectual property. It's the idea that we live in the Word and we incorporate the Word into the fabric of our life. And as a result, we are shaped by the presence of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God in our life. So it's not just like we possess it. It is active. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it is quick and active. It divides between joint and marrow. This is a living thing. It is alive. That's why sometimes when you read the Bible, Henry Blackaby says, by the way, that God is always speaking. Every time you open the Bible, God is speaking. But listen, that's why, have you ever been reading a passage, a passage maybe you've read a hundred times, but you've been seeking God about something, and all of a sudden that passage jumps off of the page at you. It's like it had never been there before, but suddenly it jumps off the page and you go, wow, and your heart starts racing. Have you ever had that experience? Because you know what? The living word has just spoken, that the Holy Spirit has taken the word and manifested it in your heart because God is saying something to you. And so the word abide it means to live under the authority of. It means to live in the place uh, where the Word sets the uh, boundaries and the parameters. That's why Paul would write in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good word. Uh, work. You see, abiding in the Word is a reciprocal process. As I stay in the Word, the Word stays in me. And when the Word stays in me, guess what it does? It instructs me. It leads me. It corrects me. It directs me. Psalm 119, one of the richest psalms about the Scripture in, in all of the Bible, says, Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Psalm 119.93, he says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you give me life. That's his word. That's what he's talking about when he says precepts. In Psalm 119.104, he says, through your precepts, I get understanding. What is he saying? What is the, the, the psalmist saying to us? He's saying it is through the, the scriptures, it's through the word of God, the precepts of God, that my life is directed and shaped and that's the truth for a disciple. A disciple is one who is abiding in the Word. Therefore, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is directing the life of a disciple and shaping their life. Remaining in Christ's Word involves then being governed by His teaching. To remain in His Word is ultimately to remain in the Word. Did you get that? To remain in His Word is ultimately to remain in the Word, the Word. Tom Eliff quotes his mentor, E.F. Halleck, whom he says was accustomed to reminding his congregation that if you were forced to choose between reading the Bible and praying, it would be far better to read the Word of God than pray. 
Fortunately, however, we do not have to make that choice, he writes. And he's right. Thank God we don't. But if you did have to make that choice, he states, it is far better to hear what God is saying than for God to hear what you are saying. Today, I believe there's a need for believers to become disciples that know the Word of God. By the way, I think it's going to be an absolute essential in the days ahead, in the years to come, in the months ahead. I think it's going to be essential. You've got to know what this book says. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus rebukes a group called the Sadducees. They were religious people, but they were ignorant of Scripture, though they prided themselves, just like the Pharisees, in their knowledge, their superior knowledge of what the Scriptures had to say. Now, they differed in some some key theological places, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but they really thought themselves a little bit smarter than everybody else when it came to Scripture. And so on one occasion, they're questioning Jesus. It's that occasion where where they say, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, a man uh, married a woman, and he died before he could give her kids. And so she, law says she had to marry the brother and she did and the same thing happened. And so she married the next brother and the same thing happened. And it's a a hypothetical thing. And then they finally get to the point and say to Jesus, so when they get to heaven, whose wife will she be? Because she'll have seven husbands up there. And Jesus, I would have loved to have seen this. He's just looking at him. You know, look, there's a Greek word, and I mean this, called moros. <laughs> and it means fool in the Greek. I, you can't help but think that Jesus probably looked and said, you are all a bunch of morons. He said, and that's when he, he makes this statement to them. Uh, but he didn't say moron, but I'm just saying that's my, I think he could have. But here's what he says to them. He says, Do you not know the Scripture? Here you are priding yourself on your superior religious knowledge, and you don't even know the Scripture. And he says this in Matthew 22, 31. Have you not, listen, read what was said to you by God? By the way, the answer is they are neither given in or given to marriage in heaven. He says you haven't read the Scripture that you claim to know so well. I think about that story, and I think that's happening in America today. It's happening in many places on the globe. There's a growing biblical illiteracy. People just do not know what the Bible says, and by extension, what God says. R.T. Kendall mentioned something that that I, as a pastor, have witnessed as well, and that is that I have pastored long enough now to remember when in a sermon I could begin to quote a scripture verse and people in the congregation finished it before I did. I've, I've done this long enough now that I remember those days. You could start a verse and the people, they could complete it before you did. Now that's still true in many places and I'm sure it's true uh, for you. But, but the fact is growing in among our churches, our believers that don't know their Bible. And and it's a growing trend, we're told. And I think it's consistent with the last days. The prophet Amos in chapter 8 and verse 11, talking about the last days, made this statement, listen, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a famine of thirst, 
but for hearing the words of the Lord. I think the growing biblical literacy is a, is a reflection of the age we're in. Are we there? Uh, maybe. But my question is, do you know your Bible? The Sadducees didn't. According to the American Bible Society, most Americans have a few Bibles in their home. But listen to this. Only one in four people qualify as what are considered Bible-minded followers of Christ. And they went on to ask this question, how often do you read the Bible? This is the American Bible Society. And they discovered that a full three-quarters of the people they asked did not read enough of their Bible to be considered biblically literate. Just a few years back, according to an article in USA Today, Facebook statistics revealed the social network had more than 143 million daily users in the United States and Canada. I bet it's much more now. But that's just the U.S. and Canada. At the same time, a CBS News poll found that there are 40 million daily Bible readers in the U.S. and Canada. And you say, what does that mean? Well, it means this, that there are now more than three times as many people who check their Facebook news feeds and share their photos with friends than spend time in God's Word. Jesus makes plain here that a disciple is known by their relationship to the Word, Jesus, the Logos, and the Word, the Scriptures. So do you know your Bible? Do you read your Bible? It speaks of the past. It speaks of the present. It speaks about the future. Do you know what's ahead? Do do you want to know how to live? You've got to read your Bible. In the coming year, I want to call us all to read the Word of God. I want to call us to get into Scripture like never before. Um. I want us to read our Bibles through this next year. You know, there was a time up until a few years ago that every other year I would ask you to read through the Bible each year, read through the Bible each year. And uh, there are plans. We have plans on our um, website where you can read through the Bible in a year. But we did something a few years back that I really loved, and that is that we offered you what's called a one-year Bible. And so we've been doing a little research, and we found them. They're publishing them again and so we're going to make these available uh, to you at a, an incredible, I mean, just the cost. Uh, it's a fabulous price we got on them. They'll be here in the next couple of weeks. We've ordered, I think, maybe 100 of them make available to We'll order more as we need to. There are all kinds of plans you can look up. Uh, this I, I love this because it's already broken down by day. So you just turn to the date and you read to the next day and, and, you know, and you'll get through your Bible in a year, a one-year Bible. I, I don't care how you get there, though. Just get there. Read your Bible. Know your Bible. And I want us to do that in the coming year. And then there's one final point, though, that I want to share with you this morning. And and it is about why remaining in the Word is so important. Okay? So we begin with believing faith that moves to saving faith. Right? We, We continue by abiding in the Word. All right? And last, freedom results from knowing the truth. 
So it begins with believing faith. It continues, freedom continues in abiding the word, and it results from knowing truth. Verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, you have to understand something. At the time that, that Jesus said these things, Judaism held that it was the study of the law that brought freedom to people. You basically had two philosophical ideas in the culture. You had Judaism and you had the Greek philosophy. These two ideas kind of carried the, the day. And Judaism held that the way you became free is through studying the law. And they had, remember, they had abused the law. They had taken the legitimate law and they had expanded it to places uh, that it should never have gone. And so they said, you gotta, if you want freedom, you got to know the law and study the law. And all it did was put a heavy burden. Jesus said, you bind men down with heavy burdens that they can't bear, legalistic burdens that they can't bear. And so ironically, they, the, the, Judaism said that this is the path to freedom. Now, the Greek had a different approach. The Greek philosophy held that wisdom is what made a person free. So you had, to, you had to discover wisdom. Philo, in fact, wrote an entire essay on the stoic notion that only the wise man is truly free. And Epictetus uh, uh, devoted his entire life to the quest of freedom and independence through the Greek ideas of philosophy in mind. But the message of Jesus is that truth is found in him alone. And that's why in this same gospel in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth. Jesus is the great liberator. And so he comes, he shows up, by the way, the Bible says, at just the right time in history. At one of the darkest periods of time in history, Jesus came on the scene. That's part of the Christmas story. And what he comes to them amidst the burdens of the law and the, the, the lack of boundary by the philosophical wisdom of the Greeks, Jesus arrives on the scene and says, if you want to know the truth, I am the truth. I am the truth. And, and freedom results from knowing the truth. Now, that's why you abide in the Word is so that you will not, your mind will not be corrupted by the lies. You are of your father, the devil. And then he goes on to say the father of lies. And so we abide in the Word so that we know the truth and so that no matter what happens in the age that we are living in, we have a legitimate standard of truth by which to filter all of the, the, the ideas of the age against. And we're living in the age of truth decay, amen? We're seeing the complete collapse of right and wrong. It's common to hear phrases like this. Have y'all heard this phrase? Well, this is my truth. Have y'all heard that? This is my truth. That's your truth. This is my truth. It's common, which is a convenient way of saying, this is what I choose regardless of what is really true or what should be true or right. So this is my truth. I've adopted my own truth. One Barnapol found that 66% of Americans believe there's no such thing as absolute truth. 72% of those between the ages of 18 and 25 reject all notions of absolutes. And what has that produced? 
What is, when there is no absolute standard for right and wrong, when there is no absolute source of truth, what happens? How is it manifested? Well, I can tell you how it's manifested in our world today. We no longer recognize the truth about history. We deny history. We rewrite and we reshape uh, history so future generations will not, will not know the truth. Good and bad, by the way. So we start canceling things, some things that are bad that history needs to record. And so we, we no longer recognize the truth about history. We're rewriting it. It's revisionist. We no longer recognize the truth about marriage. Marriage is now whatever you want marriage to be. In fact, because marriage was so... Uh, has been held in such high moral standards before. You know what eventually they just did because they, they changed all the definitions of marriage? They basically just said, now, if you want to be married, you just go to a, uh, to a justice of peace. You, once you get the license, it's all done. Don't, don't worry about anything else. Why? That way they don't have to deal with any kinds of discrepancies. We, we no longer recognize the truth about marriage. We no longer recognize the truth about gender. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There's a way to know gender. It's not complicated. I, I mean, I got two grandsons. They're at my house right now. I, they're grandsons. Thank God. <laughs> they're grandsons. There's a way, but did you know states, there are states now that are moving and removing on birth certificates gender. And they're also saying now, you, def, you decide what gender uh, your child is. We'll give you time, and then you can come back and decide. And by the way, no infant is smart enough to know what they are and say, Mom, this is what I am. I heard it about an eight-year-old. i got to move on. We no longer recognize the truth about gender. God didn't have any problem. Let me just put this footnote on there while, while I'm, I'm worked up. It says he created them male and female. Amen. We no longer recognize the truth about language. Language restrictions are now in vogue on our university campuses and in business. Pronouns, you have to use certain pronouns. Oh, you can't use gender identity. We, we, this is all what happens. This is how uh, when you don't have an absolute standard truth, this is what happens. We no longer recognize the truth about God. That's your God. We no longer recognize, by the way, the truth about humanity's condition. God help you if you say that a person is a sinner. By the way, let me be the first to confess I am a sinner. The Bible tells me I'm a sinner, but we have confused the truth about the human condition. And you know why we've done that? Because if I can deny my human condition of sinfulness, guess what I can do? I can try and mitigate the consequences. And I can also play the blame game. 
I don't have to take responsibility. We're no longer, we no longer recognize the truth about authority. What's an authority? We no longer recognize the truth of authority. And incivility has occurred all over the world because we don't know the truth about authority. We no longer recognize the truth about socialism. There was a day when, when, when there was no questions about the dangers of socialism. Do you know the vast majority of the upcoming generations see socialism as the majority of them as something very helpful to humanity? Do you know the story I started with about the, the two folks that escaped from Cuba, Loreno and Consuelo? They were getting out of a communistic, socialistic regime. Why? Because I've been there. I've been to Cuba. And they're right. The people are, 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 are so poor. I could talk for an hour about what I witnessed there. Look, we no longer recognize the truth about socialism. We, we no longer recognize the truth about criminal behavior. We no longer say, well, you shouldn't do this. We say, well, I have a right to do it because I didn't get my way about something. We don't recognize. Listen to me. This is the result. This is what happens when there are no boundaries. This is why judges said, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And it was horrible. You can't operate. And that's why there has to be a standard of truth. And let me tell you that the standard of truth is not what I think. And the standard truth is not what you think. And the standard of truth is not what some politician thinks. And the standard of truth is not what some university says or whatever Dr. Whistlebridges thinks. That is not the standard of truth. The standard of truth is Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's what the Bible says. I am the way, the truth. And by the way, I've told you this, you know this. When he says the truth, it is the definite article in the Greek. It doesn't mean I am the way, I am a truth. It means I am the one and only truth. All truth is to be measured against Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus Christ is the Logos. And guess what the word is? What is this? It is the Logos. That means if Jesus Christ is the truth, his word is the truth, and you now have an absolute standard by which to live. But if we don't get that, if we don't get that, the results are bondage to lies. You are seeing an age that has been taken captive by the lies of hell. And they're living in bondage. And that's why everybody screams, I need to be free. Let me do my own thing. Bondage is the results. Many argue that what matters is that we're sincere and just not so narrow-minded. Listen, they tell us that sincerity is supposed to cover for lies that we've accepted. But, but, but they're sincere. Look, I can, go, I can go stand in my garage 
and be sincere and say, I'm a car. But it doesn't make me a car, no matter how sincere I am. And this is the lie of the age that tells us, but whatever you believe, just believe it sincerely, and that covers all the lies. Robert Coleman said, sincerity doesn't change error. A man may mistakenly board a plane for New York thinking he's going to Los Angeles, but that doesn't change his destination. My mentor, Bill Anderson, tells a funny story years ago. Wow, the time. Y'all have used up my time. Bill Anderson told me this. I'm, I'm going to go real quick. I'll try to get this finished up. But he tells me this funny story. Uh, he was serving on a board in our convention, and he had a meeting in Nashville, and he went to the airport in Tampa. This was back before 9-11, so we didn't have quite the restrictions. And he went to the gate. He boarded the plane. He sat down uh, on the plane. Uh, by the way, he sat down next to Norman Schwarzkopf. And uh, he, he sat there on the plane and the, got to talking, so he wasn't paying attention. And they came and, and shut the door. And when they shut the door, the plane began to pull back from the jetway. And the, the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, uh, welcome. He said, uh, looks like our flight to Dallas is going to take us about uh, two and a half hours. And, but the weather's good and all this sort of stuff. And, and Bill turns to the steward and says, ma'am, did he... He means Nashville, doesn't he? And she said, no, sir, what plane, what flight do you think you were on? He said, well, I'm going to Nashville. And she said, no, sir, you're going to Dallas. <laughs> and he had to fly to Dallas uh, and sit there until he could make a connection uh, uh, back. Listen, sincerity, sincerity, friend, you, you, sincerity doesn't change your destination. You know what is the revealer of truth? It is Jesus Christ. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That isn't you shall know your truth. It is the truth. It is Jesus who liberates us spiritually and culturally. A disciple is to be a freedom follower. Jesus is the one that sets us free. A disciple has been liberated from the lies of hell and the lies of, uh, of the devil and free to the bondage of sin. Let me close with this story. John Currier is a man that in 1949 was sentenced to prison. He was sentenced to prison uh, and um, to actually a life in prison. But later... Um, he was transferred, and then he was paroled to work on a farm near Nashville, Tennessee. In 1968, Courier's sentence was, was commuted, and they sent a letter bearing good news uh, to him, but he never saw the letter. He was working as part of his prison sentence on this farm, hard labor, and, and so he never received the letter, and nobody told him uh, about the letter. So he just continued because he didn't know. He just continued working on this farm, hard labor, and he worked even after the farmer had died. It was his part of his, his sentence. And 10 years went by. And then there was a state parole officer, and that parole officer uh, learned about Courier's uh, situation. And he tracked him down, he found him, and he told him that his sentence had been commuted. Long before, over 10 years before. 
And that, that courier was a free man. And upon hearing that, George Sweeting commented, would it matter to you if someone sent you an important message, the most important message in your life, and year after year the urgent message was never delivered? Would, it, would that matter to you? You bet it would matter. Did you know the devil will do whatever he can to try and keep the message of Christ's freedom from reaching you? He'll do whatever he can. So you just keep on laboring, laboring when Christ says, I've set you free. So I ask you this morning, are you a, a freedom follower because you're a disciple of Jesus. Are you a freedom follower? Look at verse 36. What does it say? It says, He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Today, I've delivered to you the message of liberation. Whatever you do, make sure you get the message. Father, thank you for the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that for any that are watching, listening by radio, television, live stream, in this live audience, that have never moved from believing faith to sa saving faith, that today, that Father, they go beyond just knowing you're the Messiah to receiving you as their personal Messiah. So would you speak to their hearts right now? Bring conviction to their lives. Cause them to recognize their need. For some who have been wobbly disciples, Father, help them to say, I'm making a fresh commitment to abide in the Word because then I'm truly your disciple. Renew that resolve in our hearts and the discipline, Father, that we need to stay abiding in your word so that your word can abide in us. Father, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? As always, I'm going to be here at the front and staff members are going to be on these aisles and maybe there's a decision for you to make. The balcony, ground floor, just start moving. You want to come and pray, kneel before this altar? Come and kneel. Talk to him about whatever it may be, decisions, uh, people you're praying for, whatever it may be, you come on. For some of you here, maybe you need a church home, and you, you say, I want Ridgecrest to be that church home. Would you come and say, I want to join Ridgecrest today. I know Christ is my Savior. just need a church family. You come, and we'll, we'll take care of it. Don't you worry about it. Maybe you're here this morning, and you say, uh, I'm not sure I know him, but I want to because I want to be a disciple, and I'd like to receive Christ as my Savior. We'll help you with that. You come. As Brother Tim and the choir sing right now, don't wait, don't hesitate, you slip out, you come on right now.